Hello, and welcome to Not Otherwise Specified, a fun podcast about psychology that doesn't take itself too seriously, so you shouldn't either. This is purely for fun and by no means is meant to diagnose you or anyone you know with anything at all. So just sit back and enjoy the banter, don't worry about the oversimplifications, and get mentally intrigued. Welcome back to Not Otherwise Specified. I'm Rebecca, and I am generally depressed with the state of the world. And I'm James, and I'm going to help fix that, maybe, by helping you to individualize yourself. It's been a bad week, James. I haven't enjoyed this week. I need some some distraction. At least you're not Carl Jung. Is that okay? Is that good? He's not alive. Okay, well, I, you know, at least... <laughs> at least you're not Carl Jung. At least Jung. I'm not Carl Jung. There you go. Okay, so please cheer me up for about an hour. Hey, guess what we're going to talk about today? Carl Jung? Carl Jung. Okay. So what do you already know about Carl Gustav Jung? It was full name. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the serial killer, Carl Gustav Jung? Was it really a serial no, killer? No, I was just making the three-name joke. Um, <laughs> I, know that he, I know that he was a student of Freud... I know that he studied dreams, um, and that's it. He was a student of Freud, and he was all about the dreams. All right. So, as I told you on the phone today, I kind of went down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. whenever I was doing my research today. So, Rebecca recommended we talk about dreams or archetypes or those right. sorts of things. The collective unconscious, I right. think, is what so, I... Um, I took that and I started researching Jung because I, I mean, I had heard of him in grad school. I, you know, obviously, we learned his techniques and stuff, but um, I didn't know much about the man. Okay. <laughs> and then I just went crazy with that. So this might be a, a random splash of all sorts of things. That's okay. Not not so much dreams, but all kinds of other crazy stuff. Different from sad, scary news. Yeah, I mean, some of it's a little scary, but not sad. It's more in a, in a quirky sense. Okay. All right. Um, and I will warn you too that there's this isn't quite as professional as some of our other ones. It's not as much research based, it's just cool Wikipedia things about Carl Jung. Neat. So, so there you go. You know, hive mind type right. situation. It's very professional. Okay. It's professional in an, un- in an unprofessional way. That was, that's good. I use fancy words. All right, so Carl Jung, he is a, he was, I guess, poor fellow, a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he founded, or his his branch of psychology was called analytical psychology. So it was... That sounds like mathy psychology. Well, it's more of psychoanalysty psychology, okay. but his own flavor on so it. So not like analytical methods or anything like that. Well, I mean, yeah. There was not, no math involved. Pro- probably not. Okay. Uh, he was viewed by Freud as, quote, his potential heir for psychoanalysis. He, he saw in, in, young, in young Jung this, <laughs> this, this possibility. He was going to, after Freud retired and died and all that good stuff, Jung was going to continue on Carry the legacy. the torch. Um, as you'll see, it didn't quite work that way, oh. but, but we'll, we'll go with that. So as we start everything with history, we have some bi- biographical history of Mr. Jung. Here. Okay. All right, so he was born on July 26th of 1875. Leo. In Kesville, mm-hmm. uh, in Switzerland, which is in the Swiss Canton, which apparently means 
like a city state thing. Okay. Uh, Thurgau. Okay. Whatever. Uh, okay. Um, the official language, which is German, which will be important later. Okay. Uh, and to give you an idea how close it is, it's like the northern border of this city state area is the Rhine River, which goes you know right into mm-hmm. Germany. So. Um, so some interesting things about his parents, right? So his father, Paul Jung, I don't know his middle name, so he doesn't get three. Um, he was, quote, an impoverished rural pastor. So not a very rich fellow. Okay, and a minister. Right. In the Swiss Reformed Church, which is apparently related to Calvinism. Okay. I couldn't tell you much about Calvinism, but... I know the man's first name was John. His name was John Calvin. And that's it. So... Well, maybe maybe a historical podcast could tell you more about that. Right. Go ahead. The psychology of Calvinism, <laughs> maybe. All right. So Paul's father, so this would be Carl's grandfather, was also named Carl Gustav Jung, but with a K instead of a C. So let's call him Elder Carl. Elder Carl. Okay. And the other one would be Younger Carl. All right. Uh, okay. Man well, Carl and boy we're Carl. We're probably not going to talk about him again after this sentence, okay. so... That's a cool story, though. He was a noted German physician who had all these aspirations for success and, you know, prosperity and fame and fortune and all that stuff. And it just didn't didn't quite happen for him. Okay. He never really achieved his fortune. So it kind of just perpetuated this poverty for his family. Oh, sad. Right? He was uh, a physician. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe back then they, they didn't make quite as much money. They didn't have insurance and stuff yeah or, so you, you, had, know, you had to be dying to go to a doctor medical degrees i bet he he did a lot of bloodletting never know okay um so i mean you know, with, with paul so we're back to you know the dad what would you call him younger carl yes okay now, now that we're, we're just gonna call him carl now okay now that we're back to carl's dad um you know some evidence as to how they were you know, at the mercy of the church that he worked for, uh-huh. I guess, is they, they had to move parishes around here and there. And at one point, um, when Carl, so little Carl now, was about six months old, they had to move parishes to some part that was just in the opposite direction of where they were in Switzerland. Right? Oh, I, I don't, I don't so remember them. across the country. Right. Uh, which caused marital strife. Obviously. For Mr. Paul there, and mostly because of his wife being away from her family. So she was very mm. close to her family. Right. Uh, which gets us to Mother Emily. So this is now Emily Jung. Um, her father, because fathers are important here, mm-hmm. was a distinguished churchman and academic. Uh, he was, they, they had a special name for it, but he was pretty high up in the church that, that he worked okay. for. Um, he was a Hebraist. Oh my. Uh, have you ever heard of that? Did he study Hebrew? He did. Well, he oh. studied Hebrew and Hebrew culture and Jewish stuff. Okay. Right? Um, and he was a professor of Hebrew at you know, a local university where he taught Paul Jung. So maybe that's how they hooked oh, up in the first place. I don't know. She married her dad's student. There you go. Oh, my. Um, so she was described as a, quote, eccentric and depressed woman. <laughs> Aww. All right, so maybe that's when uh, little Carl Carl here started thinking about psychology. Um, she 
Now, I don't know how much of this is exaggerations or actual quotes from his life. He had many books that he wrote about himself. Um, but she was supposedly, she spent much time in her room. Oh. Right? She would just kind of be holed up in her room. Um, she said that spirits visited her at night. Right? Perfectly normal during the day. She would just mm-hmm. interacted with everyone fine. But she would stay locked up in her room at night and these spirits would come to visit her. She so it's would, almost like a sundowning type of thing. Like they talk that's about kind of Alzheimer's. the sense I got with yeah. it, too. Um, Jung described her as a strange or as strange and mysterious at night. Um, and Jung reported, again, this is based on the clever researchers on Wikipedia. Uh-huh. Jung reported that, quote, one night he saw a faintly luminous and indefinite figure coming from her room with a head detached from the neck and floating in the air in front of the body. So apparently hey. he describes seeing one of these spirits coming from her room one oh. day. So, um, so maybe it so wasn't a little bit sundowning. Of, a little bit of nature and nurture going on maybe. Yeah, that could have been his imagination, it I guess. Could have been, which will come into play later. Okay. So, um, she was hospitalized for several months and then later had repeated absences. She, she, she wasn't a very consistent figure. How about that? Okay. Um, but uh, Jung felt that she influenced his attitude towards women. Now, when we talked about Freud, we talked about how women in, in their area at this time weren't too highly thought of, you know, especially right. in, in Austria, right? Um, but in Switzerland, apparently it was, it was kind of the same. Uh, but he said that he started thinking towards women as being innately unreliable. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, if that's your mom. Oh, yeah. That, that's the the influence he had yeah. was, was her. Uh, but he did later, this might help you feel better about him, he did later call that a handicap. You know, the fact that oh. that was his first uh, experience or his first attitude, I guess, towards women was kind of a it handicapped him later on. Oh, well, so that's he, nice. he kind of like he, he noticed that that kind of added to his patriarchic, whatever that word is, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> influences later on. Um, so already just just parent wise, he had a little bit of quirkiness going on. Um, so kind of poor and impoverished, inconsistent mother. Um, he had a, a much better relationship with his father than his mother because of the consistency, I guess. Sure. Um, he was di- always Didn't around. agree with some of, um, apparently, uh, some of his father's religious ideas. He thought they were too academic. Um, I don't know. That, that's what it said. What does that mean? Um, well, well, we'll get to okay. some spirituality in a minute. Um, but you're know, getting back to little Carl himself. Uh, he was described as introverted and solitary as a child. Okay, so he, I mean, granted, I guess, you know, what, what he was dealing with, he kind of wanted to keep to himself. He didn't want to interact family-wise too much. Um, but he said, and he's been, um, he's described this in some papers or books, uh, that he felt he had two distinct personalities. Oh. Much, much like his, now, reading about this, I don't really get the sense of, you know the, the associative identity stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's just uh, he felt that he was two separate people. Well, let let me tell you about it. Okay, it'll make sense. Go. Um, but but he kind of equated it to like his mother, how she was, you know, normal during the day and then you know, different at night. Yeah. Uh, he had two personalities. Guess what he called them? Um. Personality number one, 
And personality number two. Nice. But very creative. Um, so personality number one was a modern Swiss citizen, right? Just a okay. typical schoolboy. Normal guy. Normal guy. Uh, personality number two, he felt, was a dignified, authoritative, and influential man from the 18th century. So kind of like a, being an old soul, I guess. Okay. All right. Um, which he kind of influenced, and, and you, we'll see in a moment, it influences later theories on archetypes and all that, mm-hmm. right? Um, some other quirkiness about him was when he was a child, he, uh, he noted that he carved a tiny mannequin out of a wooden ruler. Okay, so he had a wooden ruler mm-hmm. and car- carved this little, f- this little fellow, I guess. Uh, uh, this ruler that he found in his pencil case added a little stone that he painted it you know kind of like a duality thing so it was two different colors Mm -hmm. and all that um and put it back in the pencil case and then he hid it in his attic okay okay so we had this this weird little doll that he made and he hid it in the attic um that nobody else knew about and then every now and then he would periodically take it you know tiny messages written on paper put it in the pencil box i guess um but they were written in his own secret language right so he didn't want anyone to maybe he had a cipher for it maybe it was like real words he just yeah. kind of mixed it up um but he, he would kind of write these messages and and you give it to this box and then he would feel better you feel oh. at peace well you, that's that's a modern you, technique isn't well it? sure i mean yeah. uh they have all sorts of names for it, but I mean, like a worry jar or something yeah. like that. You worry about something, you write it down, you put it in a jar. Yeah. Um, and he said it felt kind of gave him this sense of inner peace, and he felt better and relieved, and, and all that good stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, much later on, I mean, obviously he didn't do this when he was a child, but later on he noted the similarities between those behaviors that he was doing, right? right? The kind of you know offering this message to this this little figure and all that um to the totem culture of you know some indigenous tribes right so how they worship these totems and then they they make offerings Uh and all um he said that as a child he had no knowledge of that so it was completely unconscious and just coincidental that he would do this so that's when he started to relate the arc the archetypal imagery okay right so and we will go more into detail with that later but what do you know about archetypes already um that there's something that everyone across cultures recognizes in the same way right essentially yeah okay so so he was saying that you know this this kind of totem worship or he didn't see it as worship but this totem interaction i guess this behavior was just this instinctual evolvement that he had, and he did that. Okay. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting. At the age of 12, uh, he was pushed to the ground by another boy, and he lost consciousness temporarily. Okay, so I guess he had a a mild concussion or something. Like, he was slammed to the ground. Um, I don't know why, but they added in that later on, he realized that it was his fault indirectly, but... Um, okay. So somehow he, he got a head trauma and he uh-huh. and lost consciousness. Um, they think that it was probably just uh, you know fits of epilepsy. But, oh. Or it may be triggered a seizure. Right. Seizure Did he activity. have epilepsy? Okay. Um, it, it said suspicions of epilepsy. Okay. Um, and he said that, or he he put in one of his books that when he was in that state, you know, during that brief unconsciousness or. Or when he came to, I guess, uh, he had the thought, the thought, now you won't have to go to school anymore. 
Okay. So, like, he was injured. He wasn't conscious anymore, so he can't go to school. Maybe he... Oh, okay. I, I think... If I remember right, he was walking to school when this happened, uh-huh. so now he can't go to school. Uh, subsequently, he fainted every single time he was walking to school or having to do homework. Really? Uh, that's what I said. That's and ridiculous. It, and he wasn't able to go to school for about a six-month period. So they were, you know, he would have all these things. I guess they would send him home as work, and he would pass out every time he tried to do it. Um, you're smacking your lips. What's going through your head that right now? That sounds like a kid who doesn't want to do his homework. You right. don't think he could have faked it? Now, of course, he might have had some sort of issue that I do not know about. But unless he had some sort of medical issue, it sounds so like he was cheating. Here was his evidence. Well, I'm putting words in, into poor Carl's head. Um, but you know, based on what I read about him... Mm-hmm. Some evidence that shows that it wasn't just him faking was uh, apparently after the six-month mark, he he overheard his father talking to somebody about um, you know if if Carl can't get better, I'm I'm worried about his future and his prosperity and and all this, and so he started thinking, well, I'm dragging down my family. I'm not going to be able to provide for my already poor family. So he went to their library in their house. Uh-huh. Or their study or whatever he called it and he, he forced himself to work as hard as he could on latin grammar <laughs> specifically maybe that was one of his classes in school i don't know sounds like um, a lunatic but he he did that and he fainted another three or four times it said uh-huh. and he, he kind of worked until he didn't faint anymore so kind of like he had exposure therapy until he he didn't faint at the thought of school okay and this, he later uh, figured out, was probably some sort of a neurosis. Yeah, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard. That is not a neurosis. All right. That is panic because you don't like school, or that's faking it. All that's right. just my opinion. Well, I mean, it goes back to those somatoform disorders we talked about. Sounds you know? goofy. Okay, okay we'll, we'll move past that. Okay. Um, he apparently would have... Uh, but, I mean, wait, pause. Good okay. for him. For overcoming his fear for the good of the family. Good right. for you, Carl. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, think about it. Even with that, he had this kind of impoverished childhood. Wasn't, you know, not much he was proud of, I suppose. Aww, right? sad. Um, so, when he went to university. Uh-huh. Right? When he went to university. He, uh, he would... He would entertain his friends by coming up with these elaborate family legends about them, him being related to these famous people and Aww. all these things. Um, jumping way ahead, he was drafted as an army doctor in World War One. Oh, um, so he <gasps> like he, um, what's his face? Watson, Doctor Watson, right? Wasn't just, he an army doctor? Just like him. I know. Yes, that's probably where it came from. Um, he was married. He had one wife. Uh, oh, so he married good for his. Him. <laughs> well, hang on. He, okay. he married his wife Emma. So now we have Emma Jung uh, in 1903. Wait, so wasn't that his mom's name? Emma Lee. Oh. Or mm. uh, yeah, Emma Lee. Mm. I think what there was some Dr. Edible Roy stuff going on there. Um, so he married her in 1903. She was seven years younger than he was. Okay, well, so that's not that's not, not, not shameful. I don't know if this was mentioned to kind of juxtapose what we know about Jung, but um, she was the daughter of an extremely wealthy industrialist. Oh. 
Okay, so he came from not much, and mm-hmm. she came from a lot. Um, Jung, and this kind of points to how society worked with men and women back then. When her father died, it, it was a uh, a very famous watch company, I believe. But okay. whenever her father died, Jung, not her, so uh-huh. Jung and her brother co-inherited the business. So forget okay. it. Forget you. You're a woman, so right. we're gonna give it to your husband exactly. instead. Exactly. Um, so they, you know, they were certainly well taken care of. They didn't have to worry about money mm-hmm. anymore. Um, she actually was not very well educated, or she she hadn't completed university or anything uh-huh. at that point. Uh, but she was extremely intrigued by his work, so she actually worked with Jung a lot and and became a, a noted psychoanalyst herself. So, oh, cool. So he, he didn't keep his woman down. She Good for she, she her went into it too. And him. Uh, they had five children. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agatha, I guess. A G A T H E. Or Agat. Agat. Mm-hmm. Gret, Franz, Marianne, and Helene. <gasps> they have three French names. There you go. Um, married Emma, and or he was married to Emma rather until she died in 1955. Aww. Um, but he stepped out on her quite a few times. <laughs> Okay. So he, he had some extramarital stuff going on. Uh, and and the the notable people that they listed, I, I looked them up as well. They were all either his assistants or, or fellow psychoanalysts. So he, he didn't venture very far. Yeah, but still. Um, Skis. I, I thought this was interesting, too. I might want to look this one up, actually. One of his last books that he published, because he, he was a very prolific writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the last books he published before his death, he died in 1961, was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. So kind of applying these archetypes and myths uh-huh. of you know, people in, you know, when they saw eclipses, you know, thinking the world was ending, that kind of stuff, to where that's what, you know, flying saucer UFO observations are now. Well, I mean, okay, we have just in the past few months experienced a solar eclipse. Right. And even where we were, we couldn't see it very well, but it was still pretty creepy. Mm -hmm. I can imagine if you didn't understand astronomy and stuff, thinking that the world might be ending. Right. So just take it up for the ancients. They had a point. So in, in the midst of all this, that's just kind of some little background info about him. In the midst of all this, uh, in the early 1900s, we come across our old friend, Sigmund Freud. Yes. Right? He is our oldest friend as far as this podcast goes. Yes. Uh, it, Jung and Freud had a, an extremely intense friendship. Right? It was... They had a bromance. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, kind of, but Freud was more of a mentor and then it merged into a friendship slash mentorship I don't, it was it was very uh what was that movie we watched the uh the dangerous method or a dangerous yes. method remember yes. about their friendship i um, don't really remember much of it yeah I, I i didn't realize this part of it so they had this this intense friendship slash correspondence slash collaboration they would write each other constantly mm-hmm. uh beginning in 1907 okay, okay. so a couple years after he married emma um and you, all throughout school, I've learned about the, you know, the contributions that Freud and Jung made together, and Freud and Jung, and Freud and Jung, and all this stuff. They were only their friendship only lasted about six years. Okay. So after six years, they I put that they broke up Aww. because they, it was like intense, and they were talking all the time, and they were visiting each other, and then went their separate ways. It was ways. dead. Yeah. Aww. Um, 
So a lot of it came... You know, Jung has the wife and the kids and all the extramarital activity. He was busy. He really didn't have time for a friend. Well, wasn't that so much? It was more that um, Freud got his feelings hurt, I guess, that Jung didn't agree with him anymore. So Jung disagreed, as did most of the Neo-Freudians, that Freud was a bit too sexual for his taste. You don't say. Focused a little too much on sexual development. Um, They had differing views on what the unconscious was, even. where He felt that Freud was way too negative. Okay. (laughs) Again, go figure. Um, And he actually called Freud's view of the unconscious incomplete. So Uh so that was was a little naughty there. Them's fighting words. they, they also had some religious or spiritual differences. Uh, but let's see. Yeah, so so where this really started to cause trouble were, uh, was when Jung published a book called The Psychology of the Unconscious because he did agree with Freud about the unconscious being impor- important. He just elaborated quite a bit on it. Okay. Um, but Freud was kind of already butthurt at that point, and he, re- he refused... Did you say butt hurt? Yeah, maybe so. Okay. He refused. Okay, he was salty. How about there you that? go. Freud was a bit salty, and he refused to even consider Jung's ideas. Uh, he he made trips to visit colleagues that were very close to Jung and wouldn't go to visit Jung anymore. Oh. You know. Um, See, that's just ugly. But but one of the worst parts, and that kind of added to some existential crises that Jung went through, uh, is Freud was very highly thought of at this point. Yeah. So him refusing to consider Jung's ideas led to a lot of other people it's abandoning him as well. Yeah. Right. So following the end of their friendship in 1913, um, uh, he was age 38. I don't know why I put that. Um, Jung experienced. He, he didn't take the breakup very well. How about Aww. that? Uh, he experienced what he called a horrible confrontation with the unconscious. I don't even know what that means. Okay, he started seeing things, having visions, hearing voices. He, he kind of had a breakdown. I would call that a nervous breakdown, not a confrontation with my unconscious. And what he, the wording of this was very interesting, so I put it in. He was worried that he was, quote, menaced by a psychosis. Okay. Or was doing a schizophrenia. <laughs> I, I like that one. I don't know why, but yeah. Doing a schizophrenia? It's like a dance. So, so if that were happening to you, yeah, how would you feel? I would feel. I would feel nervous. I'd feel anxious. Would you like it or would you dislike it? I would not it? like it. I would. It right. would make me feel uncomfortable. So this is what I found interesting. He felt that what he was going through was very valuable for his development so he tried to keep it going oh right? so he attempted yeah. to induce hallucinations or what he called active imaginations okay so he wanted to induce these active imaginations um which his reasoning behind it sounds pretty ridiculous but when i researched it a bit um it sounds very useful right so uh, i'm gonna quiz you what do you think an active imagination would be Something I don't have. <laughs> okay. Something where you're able to picture in your mind things that have not been or could never be. Hey, you're pretty close. Okay. Right? So the it was like a meditation technique almost, uh-huh. right? Wherein the contents of one's unconscious are translated into images, narrative, or personified as separate entities. So you're, you're representing all this internal anguish and unconscious stuff that you have. Okay. Um, he viewed it as a bridge between conscious awareness and the unconscious. 
right? So a lot of times it's represented as dreams. You know, that's that's part of the that's where the dream analysis uh-huh. comes in play. You know, what what do all these things that are mean our dreams mean? You know, the yeah. active imagination of our dream is trying to tell us this. Um, just imaginative things in general, uh, fantasy, those uh-huh. sorts of things. Visualizations, creativity. So he said, you know, a lot of time, art is you know representation of the unconscious. But what he would do with his with his patients would be, you know, if if you're asking someone to describe a dream to you, yes. or to describe some internal anguish they're having, um, you know, just by doing so, you're kind of influencing it. You know, whenever you're describing a dream, you might be describing what you think happened, uh-huh. and then adding in these own extra details that that have nothing to do with the dream. Right. So he would say, in this active imagination, the imagination needs to be the active part, not you. So you try to exert as little influence as possible on whatever it is that you're actively imagining. Okay, so Inception is like the anti-Jung? Okay. Yeah, because they were trying to control their dreams. Right, so what what he was trying to work with would be more of experiencing the thing instead of influencing it. Okay. So you're experiencing the story of your dream rather than changing the story. Uh, okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'll research some more. How about okay. that? How to influence your dreams. I'm sure there's a Google. And now, uh, well, no, we're saying how not to influence them, right? I want to know how. Well, then you're not Jungian, you, oh, and you don't, you don't need to be here. Okay. Um, but what he would do is, you know, he, he, he later added all this into his therapeutic approach, but he, he wrote down all of his active imaginings in what was called the red book he has this like this red journal mm-hmm. he would keep intermittently for you know a 16 year period he would write down anytime this sort of stuff happened and out of all that out of that horrible breakdown and experience that he was having a lot of his other theory came okay okay so now we're going to get to some of his key concepts all right are you are you excited for that so excited all right uh, so the first one is archetypes. Yes. <laughs> what what you asked about in the first place. original suggestion. Um, so this is actually a part of anthropology, but he kind of, uh, on, on Wikipedia, it. right, they put, quote, he borrowed from sure anthropology. Um, but it was part of the collective unconscious, which he views as a shared thing, right, this uh-huh. shared level of consciousness. Not really a, a geographical location in your brain, but just this shared stuff uh, among beings of the same species. Okay. Right. So maybe all of our cats have a collective unconscious God, together. That's Who knows? Frightening. Um, but but you know this, it is an unconscious thing. You know, based yeah. on the name, but it it is still represented all over the place. So our behaviors are influenced by this collective unconscious. Um, images we see uh, in art, myths, religions, dreams, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. So it's described as the psychic counterpart of instinct. Yeah. Right. So we have these behavioral instincts, you know, this mm-hmm. fight or flight and all that stuff. Uh, then we have these psychic or these psychological instincts, which are, are these archetypes. Okay. Right. So like his his instinct to write down his worries and give it to his little mm-hmm. ruler mannequin. That, yes. that was his 
his psychological instinct that he had. So, we're going to deviate away from Wikipedia. I apologize. Um, I have a separate site called Soulcraft. Okay. And lists 12 common archetypes. Okay. Um, So... I tried to find, you know, several lists of common archetypes, but they're all saying that it's it's impossible because <laughs> you there's so much overlap and one influences others. Like there's just a collective unconscious, just right. one big thing. Yeah. So these are some common um, characters, I guess, in, okay. in archetypes, right? So we have the ego types, the soul types, and then the self types. Oh, this um, is getting so wooey. All right, so uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to read all this, but I thought some of it was kind of funny uh, okay. because they, they give all these archetypes a motto and a goal oh and what their greatest God. fears are. And all. So the first ego <laughs> archetype is called the innocent. Right? Uh, the motto is free to be you and me. Oh, my God. All right. Their core desire is to get to paradise and their goal is to be happy. Mascot. Greatest fear Arlo is... Arlo Thomas. Okay. Greatest fear is to be punished for doing something bad or wrong. Strategy is to do things right. Okay. (laughs) Makes sense. Their weakness is they're boring for all their naive innocence. (laughs) Their talents are faith and optimism. Uh, And it's also known as, and that's why I say there's a lot of overlap between Uh these. So uh, innocent is also known as utopian, traditionalist, naive, mystic, saint, romantic, and dreamer. Okay. Okay. So they're the the feel-good kind of people. Okay. So next we have the orphan slash regular guy or gal. Wait, so are these in particular people? Yeah, they, these are... That's a good question. So they have... Because uh, arc- I was thinking of innocent like a kitten. Well, no. I mean, okay. this this is more of... These are person archetypes. Oh, okay. okay. There, are, there are also setting archetypes right. and... and experience archetypes yeah there's archetype of even of of leaving your family when you grow up and i mean there's anything you could think of there there's an archetypical thing to go with that um so yeah so that's a good question these are all people people all right so the regular guy or gal the motto is all men and women are created equal Uh, they desire to connect with others and to belong they're fearful of being left out or to stand out from the crowd Right. Let's see. Their talent is, or their weakness rather, is losing their self in an effort to blend in. Oh. Right. Uh, so their talent is realism, empathy, lack of pretense. It's also known as the good old boy, every man, the person next door, those sorts of things. Okay. The silent, my, the silent, ah, the silent majority. There you go. Right. Now we have the hero. Mm-hmm. So their motto is where there's a will, there's a way. They want to prove their worth through cur- courageous acts. and dis- oh. they, uh, They're also known as the warrior, the crusader, rescuer, superhero, soldier, dragon slayer, <sighs> the winner, and the team player. God, dog. So all sorts of heroic things. That's a lot of responsibility. And then finally for this one, we have the caregiver, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, also known as the saint, altruist, parent, helper, supporter, um, mothers in, uh, included in this sometime. So put, put you on the spot. Which one am I? What category would you put me in? You're obviously my hero. Oh, James, <laughs> I am not. That is all the antithesis of me. Everything you, everything you read about the hero is not me. <laughs> All right. 
So that was my answer. Moving okay. on. Okay. Now we have the soul types. Uh, we have the explorer. Their motto is "Don't fence me in." Um, I'll just say what they're also known as. They're also known as the seeker, iconoclast, wanderer, individualist, pilgrim. Call me the seeker. You know the Who song. Okay. You know that song. I probably do. Uh, next we have the rebel, which the image is. Che Guevara. Che. <laughs> uh, the motto is rules are made to be broken. Oh, no, that's Their not me. core desire is revenge or revolution. <gasps> no. They're also known as the outlaw, wild man, the misfit, those sorts of things. Then there's the lover, which you are the only one is their motto. Um, their greatest fear is being alone or being a wallflower. Also known as the partner, friend, intimate, enthusiast, sensualist. That's oh fancy. Spouse and team builder. We have the creator. This is obviously you. If you can imagine it, it can be done. Is also known as the artist, inventor, dreamer, and so Gosh, on. Gosh, that's not me at all. Right. Good call there, So James. you're kind of getting the idea with these. Yes. Is they're, they're, right. they're cheesy. Well, the way they're presenting them are cheesy, yeah, but the ty- it's the type of thing I'd see on Facebook. Like, which type are you? And I'd roll my eyes. But at the same time, if you try to realistically look at people, you could probably put them into one of these sure, categories. Like sure. the next one, the jester. You only live once. Yeah. You're kind of like a class clown, practical joker. Bob Dylan. Okay. Okay. The sage, the truth will set you free. Uh, this is sometimes called the wise old man, okay. <laughs> those sorts of things. Um, the magician, I make things happen. So not a magician like actually performing magic, um, but you know, sometimes called the visionary, catalyst, inventor. You know, they, they make things happen. Mm-hmm. And finally, we have the ruler where power isn't everything. It's the only thing. Oh. That That is definitely you. That is absolutely. Are you kidding Also me? known as the boss, leader, oh. role model, manager. No, well, okay, maybe that's my current position. It's not the position I, I generally <laughs> I generally go for, but okay. So there's your archetypes. Oh, okay. But we're going to go in more, more than into I bargained for. Yeah. Uh, so Jung was also noted for, for really bringing the ideas of extroversion and introversion to psychology. I can psychology. totally get into introversion. All right, so tell me what you think in as an introvert well i think of myself as an introvert okay so i feel more comfortable at home okay whenever i have to be around people it stresses me out okay not all people all right like there there are certain groups of people that i can be around that i'm perfectly comfortable with but especially people i don't know very well it i it it drives me crazy I'm, i'm very uncomfortable so Jung's idea of introvert and extrovert are, are a little different than the way we use them modernly, right? So he related it more. Again, he brought it back to archetypes of you know, uh, Apollo and Dionysus. Oh, okay. I don't remember that at all. Well, we, we won't get much into them. Okay. But the way he described an introvert, and he himself he was a self-proclaimed introvert. Mm-hmm. Um, so personally, I think he described these a little better than extrovert. Maybe it was just okay. self-fulfilling prophecy. Um but he, he said that introverts, he doesn't look at it as, you know, being nervous or anxious around the external world, right. but just be more focused on the internal world okay. of reflection, dreaming, and vision, thoughtfulness, insight, those sorts of things. Uninterested in joining with others, sometimes. Right. Yeah. It didn't say that they never would do that, um, but that they interpret the world, the world subjectively. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, because they're they're being insightful and thoughtful about right. it. Right. Extroverts, on the other hand, are the opposite of all that. Right. So all instead right. of the internal world, they're all about sensory perceptions. They're action oriented, and they that would be Dionysus, and they interpret the world objects objectively instead. Okay. So. All right. So I I don't know I I I think I I interpret the world subjectively. Okay, that's the introvert. Would Would you agree? Sure. Okay. I just, I, I always considered myself an introvert. I just didn't know if I was... Okay, so by modern standards, you probably would be. Buying into Facebook hooey is what I thought I was doing. All right. So now we have uh, a few... Well, let me, let me skip down to another thing. So I said earlier I was going to help you to individualize, right? Yes. So one of his main things, uh, like main targets and focus for his everything right mm-hmm. his there his theory his therapy all that was called individuation okay right? which is a word unto, unto itself it's the manner in which a thing is identified as distinguished from other things so okay. you're, you're individualizing it. Yes. instead of it being part of this collective it's this one thing we might call it differentiation sure okay but but specifically you're trying to individualize it okay right there um so yeah, that, that sounds kind of opposite of the collective unconscious, right? So he's saying that we have this kind of collective psyche of, of all these things, mm-hmm. but we need to individualize ourselves or, or go through this process of individuation to get out of that, right? Okay. To, to not just be you know, narrowed down into this thing. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, I, I, I know it sounds weird. It'll it make does. sense in a moment. Uh, for Jungian ideas about this, the individual self develops out of an undifferentiated unconsciousness. Okay, so <laughs> calm down. So what he's saying is essentially when we're born, we just we have our personal experiences and we have this collective unconscious. Yes. But we don't have us yet. The, okay. the self, right? So we need to develop out of that, maybe pull some things from this collective unconscious, but make it our own. Okay. Okay, so we're individuating in that process. And that's kind of, that was my, um, and maybe this is going to come up later. Okay. But that was kind of my, my idea for archetypes. Like, everybody has generally the same idea of what's scary. Okay. And the same idea of what's beautiful, usually. Okay. That 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 was that was the purpose, of you know that 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 was my initial thought. So is is that a thing really? That, that's the way I've always thought about it. it. It's apparently a little bit deeper than that. They they do okay. have those things. Okay. You know, but um, you know, his, this individuation stuff is a little bit deeper than that. Okay. Right. So he said that. Uh, so basically, the process is you bring the unconscious into the conscious. Uh, into consciousness to be assimilated into the whole personality so again you take uh your personal unconscious which Mm -hmm. is what freud would just call the unconscious yeah uh which would be your own repressed feelings and all that crazy stuff uh and the collective unconscious so your more world based unconscious Uh and you smush them together until it becomes your personality okay okay um, and the way it goes, there's a process where you go through several archetypes, and then we'll go over what those are. Persona, ego. Well, ego is kind of the stuff we've already talked about. So persona, ego, shadow. Okay. Uh, anima slash animus. Wise old man, and then eventually we get to the self. 
Okay. Okay. Wise old man. That can't be the term he used. Mm-hmm. Wise old man. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you, you've met a wise old man where you just want to listen to them and hear their their wise tales you, and they help direct to, you. You have to get there before you can become yourself? Oh. It's part of the process. Wow. So I haven't become myself yet. Says who? I don't, I'm not a wise old man. Well, you don't, you don't become a wise old old man. Just, just listen. Okay, I'll listen. All right. So first we have the persona, right? Okay. Uh, so this is the the social way. I lost my page. Uh, it's the social face we present to the world. Uh-huh. Right? So... Facebook. Your Facebook is your persona. And that... And I'm glad you said that, because that matches the definition pretty well, or, or the quote he has mm-hmm. here. It's a kind of mask... Yes. ...to be designed on the one hand to make a definite impression upon others. Yes. And on the other hand, to conceal the true nature of the individual. Well, yeah. Right? So you put something out there, but it's not quite who you are. Right. You put on this persona, yeah. right? Kind of like you know, uh, they equated that to you know the masks that people used to wear and you know Greek tragedies mm-hmm. and all that, right? You you just put on this play. Yeah. Um, it's made from bits of the collective unconscious, so we're we're not to who we are yet. We're not to right. self, right? Because this is the first step. But we take all these bits from the unconscious, and you know, if we look at it more realistically, we take bits from our environment. What we've been exposed to. What are, people will think will are is cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we, we create this persona. Yes. Right? There are aspects of the self in there because otherwise uh, there you know that goes back to that sociopathy otherwise you're catfishing. About. Well that's Oh my gosh, I, I, this has become so interesting. Okay. Um, and then what the therapist would do is try to help help to liberate the person from their persona to regain their real self during individuation. Oh my god. To- let's, go, let's go back to catfishing. Okay. That would be a, a complete persona that has none of yourself in it. Correct. Wow. That's a problem. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, well it depends on why you're doing it too. If you if you want to be this persona and it's not you then that's mm-hmm. you know some problem or if you're just trying to steal money from little old ladies that's a different problem. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we go through the persona, and then we start to develop the ego a bit. Kind of the same ideas when we talked about Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we get into the shadow. What, what do you think the shadow archetype is? That's the that's the stuff you don't want people to know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the stuff hidden behind the persona. Right. right. So we've busted through the persona. That's okay now. Now we have to confront the shadow. Yeah. Right? Which is described as the dark side. I'm actually not happy. <laughs> That's what it would be, right? Yes. Okay. Um, these, this can be viewed from different ways. Freud would have called it the least desirable aspects of your personality. Okay. Right. And Jung, Jung said that could be part of it as well. It's, and Freud would say it's all that mess that's you're pressed deep down in the mm-hmm. unconscious, right? Um, but it can also just be everything that we're not fully consciously aware of. So like all the stuff it can be hidden from us as well, right? So just Whoa. all that deep stuff. Uh, it could be hidden positive stuff, uh-huh. uh, which I never thought of it this way, but that's like people with low self-esteem, right? They still have positives, but it's kind of hidden behind the shadow. Okay. So they're not you know, consciously aware of it. Um, it is also believed 
by uh, Jung to be the seat of creativity, right? So all this mess that we have hidden in the unconscious, that's why we said earlier that can be represented through art, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're representing it that way. Um, so to help with this, again, central to individuation, we're, we're trying to get the self there, right? Um, the, the therapist would need to shed light on the shadow, right? So you'll make it okay. not dark anymore. Um, because if you if we just leave things in the shadow, they kind of fester. Yes. Right. So they get worse, or or you said it's it's almost like the shadow, not not really, but you know just the unconscious mechanism, the shadow kind of has free will over influencing you, right? So you're you're trying to put on this persona, you're hiding all these things, but it's kind of controlling you all at the same time. Okay. So we need to shed light on that and make it happy, happy. Then we have anima and animus. Okay, and it sounds like you were saying animus and animus. An. Like anima? A-N-I-M-A. Anima and animus. So we can call animus. it anima. How's that? Okay, that's that better. Good. Anima and no, animus. Don't, don't say it like that. Sounds like laus. <laughs> it right? does. Uh, so anima, anima. is expression of feminine inner personality in men. And animus is expression of masculine inner, inner personality in women. What is that even? So it's it's like so for me my animo or my anima sorry uh-huh. it would be like my hidden feminine qualities, All right? And how hidden it is yeah. depends on your level of uh, anima or animus development. Okay. Okay. Animal development is that what it's called? No. Come on. It would be so handy. The, and again, you one thing to point out this is all archetypal stuff. It's not. It's not influenced by your environment. It's not like you try not to cry because, you know, boys don't cry and, and your society tells you that. Or, okay. or it's not like wearing little pink dresses because you think that's what girls are supposed mm-hmm. to do. This is more that unconscious Under the stuff. Right. Um, so I, I didn't go through both of them. Just know the development's basically the same for men and women. Okay. Um, but so the, the anima development, not animal, uh, the purpose is for the male subject, so that we'll use me as an example, okay. is uh, the purpose is for the male subject to open up emotionally, mm-hmm. open up to emotionality rather, broader spirituality, intuitive processes, creativity, imagination, and sensitivity towards self and others. So this, this hidden feminine aspect adds to that your sensitivity toward others, that the softness and all that kind Quote, of stuff. Quote, feminine aspects. That's what it says. I said quote. Oh. Okay. So, um, the developmental process is kind of interesting. You named each one of them. Uh, So, the first one is Eve, after, like, Adam and Uh Eve. Uh, This is where women, again, unconsciously are just viewed as an object of desire. Okay. No qualities to them, just an object of desire. Mm -hmm. Then you transition into Helen, like Helen of Troy. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Or Bobby Boucher's mama. Yeah. Uh, which you, you view a woman for her external talents rather than internal qualities. So just like... So you're growing up. You're, you're growing up, right? Yes. Then you get to marry. Like, yeah. Like Mother Mary, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, and you see women as virtuous and nothing unvirtuous at all. right? So it's like this holier-than-thou kind of yeah. virtuous thing. Then you get to Sophia, which is apparently the Greek word for wisdom. And also William's girlfriend in preschool. 
Well, that was Sophia. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, where women, you finally realize that women can possess both positive and negative qualities and they're well-rounded, right? So now you're connected with that feminine side and you can see all those aspects. Okay. All right. Then the, the other one for women is the same, but for women. Okay. Okay. So we have to go through that. We have to you know, get in touch with our own masculinity and femininity and all that. And then we move on sometimes to the wise old man or uh-huh. woman. Okay. Or, or sage or uh, the, I, I thought you'd like this the example they gave was it's kind of like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings okay I don't like that at all <laughs> because I don't even know what that means he, he's kind of like this figure that's not really doing anything for them but kind of guiding them along like it, it's guiding you through this process to get to yourself so Creed from the office <laughs> okay yeah yeah okay sure. thank you it's just like Creed from well, the Well, he's office. the old man. He doesn't really do anything. He just guides them along. There you go. Creed. So now, now we've gotten to self, and we okay. are we're good and we're fixed. Okay. Um, and actually, speaking of the office, uh-huh. the next thing we have is called synchronicity, <laughs> otherwise known as a police album. Right. Otherwise known which, as which was based off of Jung's work. <gasps> Actually. Really? And uh, I'd never realized this when you look it up now that on the cover of the album is a picture of Sting reading uh, Jung's book about synchronicity. And oh. then there are like excerpts of it all over the place. Cool. There you go. Well, and also it was the inspiration for the name of Kevin's band, Scrantonicity. And Scrantonicity no, 2. He wasn't in Scrantonicity 2. No. No, but there was a Synchronicity 2. Okay. Album. Mm-hmm. So synchronicity, and this this applies to other things too. This um, this is kind of deep. I didn't know if you'd like this one or not. Uh, events, not that you don't like deep things. Okay. But, you know. mm-hmm. uh, events are meaningful coincidences. Quote: uh, If they occur with no causal relationship, let's yet seem to be meaningfully related. So they're not correlated necessarily, or, or there's no causal relationship whatsoever, mm-hmm. but it's it's a meaningful coincidence. Okay, so this is calling it into your universe? Um, okay. Like, well, we have, I put it on my dream board, and then right. I got it? Sometimes it's called a causal, not a causal, a uh-huh. causal, like not causal, <laughs> connecting principle. Um, he felt it gave conclusive evidence for his concept of archetypes and collective unconscious. Okay. I'm not sure where that comes in. Um, but basically what it is, is we are both a part of something and the focus of something. Or it's described as both the observer and connected phenomenon ultimately stem from the same source. And it's called Unus Mundus. One world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, a quote from uh, from Jung. Okay. okay. It's kind of long, but I thought this would explain it very well. I thought it was interesting. Uh, My example concerns a young woman patient who, in spite of efforts made on both sides, proved to be psychologically inaccessible. The difficulty lay in the fact that she always knew better about everything. Her excellent education had provided her with a weapon ideally suited to to this purpose, namely a highly polished Cartesian rationalism with an impeccably geometrical idea of reality. After several fruitless attempts to sweeten her rationalism with a somewhat more human understanding, I had to confine myself to the hope that something unexpected and irrational would turn up, something that would burst the intellectual retort into which she had sealed herself. 
Well, I was sitting opposite her one day with my back to the window, listening to her flow of rhetoric. She had an impressive dream the night before in which someone had given her a golden scarab, a costly piece of jewelry. While she was still telling me this dream, I heard something behind me gently tapping on the window. I turned around and saw that it was a fairly large flying insect that was knocking against the window pane from outside in the obvious efforts to get into the dark room. This seemed to me very strange. I opened the window immediately and caught the insect in the air as it flew in. It was a scarabade beetle, or common rose chafer, whose gold-green color most nearly resembles that of a golden scarab. I handed the beetle to my patient with the words, Here is your scarab. This experience punctured the desired hole in her rationalism and broke the ice of her intellectual resistance. The treatment could now be continued with satisfactory results. Oh my god. If I could vocalize an eye roll, I would. <laughs> this is like chicken soup for the soul. Well, that's the... It's a meaningful coincidence. Sure. They, they, well, hang on. I think uh, it's a meaningful lie. Well, it, it could have been made up. Okay. But the idea is there there is no causal relationship whatsoever of her telling that story and that beetle showing up. Okay, and he he's, recognizes Right, he's that. not saying it's okay. not that call okay. into the universe Okay, stuff. okay, good. He's just saying that it's a meaningful coincidence. So what what can we pull from that? You know, that, that okay. would be, yeah, that kind of stuff. So he does he does realize that it is completely a coincidence. Like you, you said a causal. A causal, right. Okay. Now, he was criticized a fair bit for, or he was called uh, mystic at times and those mm-hmm. things. So there, as you call it, there may have been some hooey involved. Or woo. Hooey woo. or woo. Woo, yes. Either way. Um, he, he was accused of a lot of things that weren't true. He okay. was accused of being uh, for Nazis and anti-Semitic, and that wasn't true, and all those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah, I told you Nazis were going to come in. Okay. Um, there they were. All right. So I've been talking a whole bunch, but I have a couple more young things to tell okay. you. Okay. Right. Uh, so I mentioned about spirituality, how he kind of differed with Freud on that. Mm-hmm. Um this this was an interesting story. I'll, you might like this one better than the last one. Um, so he was convinced that life has a spiritual purpose. It's not just you know material things. We we have a purpose. Everything in life has a purpose. We won't finish it because it has an offensive word in it. But that's people are the circus. Yes. There you go. Um, so he studied all sorts of things: Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Gnosticism, Taoism. Uh, you know. Judaism, all sorts of traditions. And he believed that the heart of all those uh, is individuation. Of course, his idea of, of that. Of course. Uh, which was also, is also viewed as you know, the transformation that takes place, that spiritual mm-hmm. awakening. Uh, it's at the mystical heart of all religions. Right? So regardless of the deity and all those things, you're trying to you be reach your potential, be a good person, all that kind of stuff. Right? Um, so it's the journey to meet the self and at the same time meet the divine is what he called it. Okay. It's spirituality. So it's kind of like a nirvana type of idea. Right. He, he started using this uh, with uh, a patient he had by the name of Roland Hazard III. Right. Oh, my God. Roland Hazard. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's like a boulder. It's a pretty great name. <laughs> Roland um, Hazard. But he was suffering from chronic alcoholism. Oh, that's not that's not no. funny at all. No, that was a hazard. OK. Right? Um, and he kind of like with this this lady who had the scarab, he tried all sorts of things and he 
uh, Mr. Hazard just wasn't improving, right? Uh, at one point, Jung said, you know what? There's pretty much nothing I can do for you unless you had some sort of a spiritual experience, right? You need to individuate and all these things. Um, so Roland Hazard took that to heart, and he, he was American, uh, and he returned to the U.S., and he joined a Christian evangelical movement known as the Oxford Group. It changed to re something, I don't know. Okay. Um, but, you know, he, he joined this evangelical group, and it was helping him, and he was, you know, he wasn't drinking anymore or not as much or whatever. Um, then he started to bring other alcoholics to it, to this Oxford group and shared what Jung taught him. Okay. One of these alcoholics was Ebby Thatcher. Okay. You ever heard of Ebby Thatcher? No, but I'm waiting for he, Bill W. He was a long time friend and drinking buddy of Bill Wilson. So Jung indirectly started a a Oh my God. Right? He was the, he was the original friend of Bill W. James. Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Look, it's full circle. Full circle. Gosh, well, not full circle. It's like a P. It's like we've gone and back to So the if fiction. it wasn't for <laughs> Freud's craziness about sexuality, uh-huh. AA would never have occurred. Wow. Well, that is just, that, that is <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, a couple other things that I don't have much on. Um, apparently, there was some influence from you in quantum mechanics. Okay. Okay. Um, it was influenced by the synchronicity idea of some events being non-causal. I, I didn't venture down that rabbit hole very much, I, but apparently that's that's influential in quantum okay. mechanics. Um, Jung also had many dinners with Einstein, and they talked about relativity and, and all that, so maybe wow. some of that came from there. Okay. Um, he also related a lot of his work to alchemy. Okay. Uh, not, not to alchemy... Yeah. I can't be shocked. Hey, hey, oh, genuinely hey, oh. shocked. So, I again, this is one maybe out of fears is how far it would go. I didn't get much into this one, but the example I read on the website, I, I could see it fitting. Okay. Okay. So hold with me for a second. So he related alchemical symbols to the psychoanalytical process. So he related it to what's happening. So he said, so I don't know much about alchemy. It was basically changing one thing to another, right? Yeah. It's making mm-hmm. something worthless. Making into something. You know, some other metal into gold. Yes. Classically, yes. I think. Right. Uh, so he said it's like the transformation of the impure soul or uh-huh. lead to perfected soul, gold, which is a metaphor for the individuation process. Okay. Okay. I, I don't know how much she really got into the alchemical side of it, but yeah. you know, there you go. And finally, I mean, this kind of relates to a lot of other stuff we talked about. He was big for art therapy, you know, saying that it can help alleviate feelings of trauma and fear. Well, because of that unconscious comes out with go. artwork, huh? There you go. All right. So, so. is that... Is that the ball game there? Yes. I could have gone on and on, but I mean, you heard me earlier. I said, I need to stop with yeah. this and just stop. That This was unexpectedly really fun. I agree. It, I mean, I, I, when I heard you were doing Jung and then toward the middle of the podcast, I was thinking, I don't hear anything about the archetypes I was expecting, but it turned out to be so super interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you, James. You're welcome. I was distracted for one hour and two minutes. Well, good. <gasps> No, my no. my work is done. No more CNN for the day. Yeah, right. And just go to bed. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. All right. So, 
with that, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and come back next time for more psychological hilarity. And again, this is not a substitute for actual psychological care. It was not meant to cure what mentally ails you. If you feel you need this help, please seek it out for yourself from a qualified mental health professional in your area. Thank you. Bye.